Chapter 2, Part 2 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Last Sunday, we looked at John chapter 2. We opened up the first 13 verses or so, and we learned that Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana. And when he goes there, they run out of wine. And so what Jesus does is he takes these six stone jars that were empty, and he tells his servants to fill it up with water, and he transforms that into wine. Now, these stone jars were often used for the Jewish purification ritual during that time. And so when Jesus transforms this water into wine, he's making a statement that no longer will you have to do this, uh, get the water from these stone jars in order for you to go through a purification ritual. That through him, he's going to offer a whole new way in how one can be purified. Something that we cannot attain on our own, it is something that only Jesus can do for us. And so that's, he was making a statement like that. Today, we're going to continue in John chapter 2 and finish up the chapter. And Jesus does something a little strange, quite peculiar, something quite out of character for him. But yet, he's going to make another powerful theological statement in this passage. And through that, we're going to learn two critical things about God that I do think you and I need to know about to kind of help us to pursue our journey as we walk with Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, all right, the New Living Translation. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them, and all, chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over the t- their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. This is the word of God. Bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer. Lord, um, something infuriated you 2,000 years ago when you were at this temple during Passover. There was a reason why. Your anger was not sinful, but it was justified. Would you help us to unpack this passage to understand exactly where you were and what you were going through those 2,000 years ago? But also, I pray that you would just help us and teach us some things about God that we need to learn today. Because, um, God, I pray that you would give us all an insatiable desire to want to know more about you. And that we would long for that, really. And, God, that we wouldn't try to learn more about you so that you can just benefit our lives, but, God, that... We would truly long to know you more so that we can continue to live in a real deep, profound, and intimate relationship with you. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. So after this wedding, we find that Jesus goes directly to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which coincides with our Easter, actually. It's celebrated during the springtime. And uh, what they do is that it's a Passover, it's a celebration or a remembrance of what God did for the people of God when Israel departed from Egypt. The people of God were spared. If you read Exodus 12, it's in detail and it shows you, it teaches us what the Passover celebration is about. The people of God's lives were spared when the death angel of death passed over their homes that had been marked by the lamb, the sacrifice of a lamb. And this story again is found in Exodus 12. And after this, Pharaoh then releases God's people from 400 years of slavery. And so during the first century, Jewish families from all over the world were expected to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that they would go there, and when they would go, they would go to participate in a sacrifice, to to have a symbolic meal, to worship, and to remember the great story of how God had freed them from the evil hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptian government. Right? And so when this was happening from Passover, I just want you to understand why Jesus gets upset. was because um, w- when these people from all over the world were going, they were going into the temple, some of them actually brought their own sacrifices. They brought it from home. And what would happen was that these religious leaders were the ones who were manning the, uh, the, 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 the tables where they were selling animals. And also they had a table where they were changing currency because in order for you to pay for these animals, you need to have the right currency. And what they were doing, and, and they, what they were doing is they were telling these people that even brought their own animals, they said, you can't use those animals. These are the animals that you have to buy. These are the only animals that you can use to sacrifice for during Passover. And so they would charge them a premium and actually make money off of them. This wasn't just an entrepreneurial who was doing this. This was like if I was there, like if I was here before you came in here, I said that you had to buy certain things to come in here. I was profiting from it. Also, because they had a currency exchange table, in order to do that currency exchange, these religious leaders were actually profiting because they were charging a premium on top of the currency exchange. And so that's why Jesus gets so upset. He gets so angry that he makes a whip and he starts whipping the area so that the animals would run away, so that the religious leaders would stop doing what they're doing. And so they get angry because, again, Jesus is impacting their business. And so they say to him, by what authority do you do this? Show us a sign or a miracle to prove that you have authority to do this. And Jesus makes a crazy statement. He says, destroy this temple in three days. I will make it rise again. And they said, are you crazy? And Jesus was again talking about his body. And so here is Jesus making another powerful statement. Because when he went to the wedding, he changes the wine to, uh, he changes the water into wine, and he was saying that no longer will you go through the old ways towards purification. I am the new way towards purification. Now at this temple court, Jesus is making another powerful statement. He's saying that worshiping God and sacrificing to God is no longer going to come from this physical temple. It's going to come through me. And that's the statement that he's trying to make. And that's what you and I have to realize. Jesus was making something, a statement, that really encapsulates what the church is supposed to be. He was ahead of his time predicting what would happen through his own body. That as he dies for us on the cross, resurrect from the dead, what that will be now is the church. And so what do we learn about God in these passages? In this passage, there are two things we learn about God in this passage. The first thing we learn is this. God cares about the church. God cares about the church. Let's read verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed? It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you cannot rebuild it 
in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. Jesus is acting out, of his, acting out on his relationship with the Father. As Messiah and God's son, Jesus is now driven to protect God's house of worship. We see that happening. Jesus is protecting God's house of worship. And that's what he does here in this passage. And what we learn in this passage is simply this. God really does care about the church. Do you believe that God cares about the church? Can I get an amen? amen. God really cares about the church. Now, Jesus, again, was a little bit ahead of his time, right? But he wanted these people to realize that it's going to be through Jesus in which now you will come and worship me through. Now, I know sometimes people will think that. They'll see this and they'll say, well, then you don't need the church necessarily. We don't need this church, this building to be in here. In some ways, I agree with you, but in other ways, we do need to congregate and be together. You see, Paul, what he says in Ephesians 4.15, he says something really important about Jesus and the role of the church, which is us, which is you and me. It's not a building, but it's you and me. Look what he says in Ephesians 4.15. He said, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Colossians 1.18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body, he is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. Jesus is the head of the church. Amen. We are his body. Amen. All right, now I know for some of us, we live in a day today, I hear even pastors say this sometimes, but our culture has a very low view of the church today. It's true. Very low view of the church. Now, I do believe sometimes that happens just because People are a part of some churches where they never really encountered God or his presence. I get that, all right? Some of you also might have sort of lost sort of favor in the church because you've been hurt by some leaders in the church. And I get that as well. Maybe some pastors have hurt you. I mean, this text is a warning to church leaders that we are to be careful because God is going to hold us to a higher standard. He's entrusted us to care for his body, right? So that's a warning to me and to our pastoral staff and to our elders and our leaders, okay? But also, maybe some of you have been part of a church where you've been hurt. That's horrible. None of that is good. But what I want you to know is that the body might have been dysfunctional because the body of Christ is sort of a, a, a conglomerate of broken people like you and me. We're going to get hurt in the church. There is no church. If you think that you can be a part of a church where you're not going to get hurt, then you're not really a part of that church. Because when you get to know people and you get to start and you want to be in a relationship with them, you don't think you're going to have struggles. You don't think people are going to hurt each other. That's a natural part. That's an ebb and flow of relationships, right? It's just a reality. Like you cannot say if you're married, you've never fought with your spouse. Of course you fought with your spouse. Some of you fight too much, right? But you fight. Fighting is a natural part to building intimacy in any type of relationship. And some of you I know have been hurt in the church. But I just want you to know, you were just a part of a, like a body that might have hurt you. It was a broken body. But the head was still good. Jesus is the head of every church. That's why we cannot say, I don't like this church. It's just, no, 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 no. Listen, the body might have its issues. But Jesus is the head of that church too. Amen. Jesus is the head of every church. And what Jesus was saying to these religious leaders, he's saying, listen, I'm going to start a new thing where through me, I am the head of this thing and everyone else is just the body. And so we're a part of this. God truly cares for the church. And if that's the case, how about you? Do you care for the church today? Do you really care for the church the way God cares for it? Because if God cares for the church so much that he's willing to sacrifice his son, to die on the cross and resurrect from the dead so that the church could be established. 
How about you? Do you care for this church? Do you care for the church of God? Or do we just continue to come here and you just expect the church to just give you some things, take good care of your kids and teach them some things about God, and then just kind of move on? That's sad. That's sad. That's not what Jesus had envisioned. And, you know, we're reading the book of Acts during the New Testament challenge, and you're seeing what God is able to do through the dynamics of the church. And I want you to know today, honestly, if people are going to ever come to know Jesus Christ, it's going to happen through people in the church, through you, through me, because Jesus is the head of this body, of this institution. And I hope that God stirs something in your heart today. To not just come and be a part of this church or just take from the church, but that you could fully give yourself. Because some of you, honestly, you're a major part of this body. And if you don't do your part, we're not going to be healthy. Like, we actually need you in order to impact the lives of people. Like, I've been praying this year for 2023 that God will allow more people to come to Jesus Christ than in the past 19 years of our church history. That this will be a breakthrough for us. I hope you, I hope you too desire that. That you too desire that we're not just here to be a country club and just have fun and enjoy ourselves, but we're also here because God's given us a mission. And the mission is that this church can be an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's what the mission is. Are we perfect? Heck no. We have our issues. We have our dysfunctions, yes. But Jesus is the head. And if Jesus is the head, we have to care for this church the way God does. So can I encourage you to get involved and be a part of the life of this church in every way? That if you're not a part of a community group, can I encourage you to join a community group? And more than that, for some of you, you can actually be leading a community group. Maybe you think about that. Talk to Pastor Doug after this service. We're struggling. A lot of our community groups are full. They're at maximum capacity. I just learned about this this week. And our pastor said, hey, listen, like, you're going to preach about this, Peter, but we don't really have community groups, people to join because we don't have enough leaders. Some of you can lead those groups. We're looking for some Bible-based community groups. I know Pastor David Hosan is going to lead a community group. It's going to be virtual, but it's going to do a Bible-based. Pastor Josue is going to do a Bible-based one as well. I'm going to do a men's breakfast club, 6 a.m. in the morning on Thursdays. If you're interested, you're more than welcome to join me, all right? I make it extra hard for you to be a part of my group, all right? But um, I want to encourage you Think about serving. Some of you are actually really good at creating a sense of community and allowing people to get deeper in God's word. Why not use that and let people draw closer to one another and get closer to God through it? Why not be a part of that and be a part of community? Why not sort of say, you know what, I'm going to stop dating this church and I'm finally going to take the step of becoming a partner. That I'm going to take that step of being a partner's membership, finally taking that step of being a member of this church, that you would take that step because God will just bless you and bless our church and bless you as you take that step. And I'm so grateful because God has really brought some amazing people and people have been taking that step and it's been really cool. Why not serving in a ministry in this church? Do you realize that every week God invites you and me to be a part of something where we can actually transform somebody's life for all eternity? Like sometimes we might only get one invitation, that's on a Sunday. Whatever you're doing, whether you're helping out the children's ministry, breakdown setup, worship team, um, the media team back there, whatever it might be, the welcome ministry, that God would use you to potentially impact somebody's lives for all eternity. Like, like you don't have to travel to South Africa. You don't got to travel to Thailand to do those kinds of things. You can do it every week here as God allows you to serve in some capacity. 
Be a part of the church. God cares for the church. Jesus died for the church. He's telling these religious leaders, there's going to be a new, a new place where people will come to worship me. That's what he was saying. And because he's resurrected from the dead, the church is here. Jesus is the head. We are his body. And God wants us to use the church as a place where people can come in contact with him and start a relationship with him. That's what he would love for you and I to be a part of. And I hope we can sign up for that together. Um, when, I, when I worked under David Hosang, Pastor David Hosang, if you're new, you probably don't even know who this guy is. He recently moved out uh, back in the summer with his wife. David was on staff here for about eight years. And he recently moved back uh, to California, but he's still on our staff. He's our consulting pastor, and, uh, and he's still with us. So, you, so if you guys ever want to talk to him or he's great at pastoral counseling, you can always set up a time to do that. But when I was in California in seminary, I served under him. He was my boss. And the great thing about David was that he and I would always talk about theology. I'd be learning about stuff in school, and every week, once a week, we would sit down and I could talk to him about anything I wanted to. And a lot of times we'd just talk about theology. But one time I did ask David, I said, David, why did you leave seminary? If you don't know, David is a doctor. He's a professor of New Testament. He got his PhD in New Testament at Oxford. He taught at uh, seminaries like Regent in Vancouver, Canada. He taught at Talbot in Southern California Seminary. And so I said to him, I was like, why did you decide to leave the seminary and devote yourself fully to the church? Because that's what he's done. He doesn't want to go back to the seminary and teach at the seminary level. And he said, Peter, the reason why is because he said the church is God's primary way of accomplishing his redemptive purpose. And he said, I want to be a part of that. I want to give myself fully to that. Basically what David was saying was this, Peter, the church is where all the action is. And I want to be a part of that. Don't you want to be a part of the action? Don't you want to be a part of God's redemptive purpose that requires you to care for the church and honestly start growing and having more faith in the church? I know some of you have really lost faith in the church. And I get it. I understand it. But don't ever forget Jesus is the head of the church. And so because of that, we need to care for it because God will always care for it because God cares for Jesus and he cares for you and me and he cares for the lost people in this world. Amen? Last thing, last thing we learn about God is this. Um, he knows what's in your heart. God really knows what's in your heart. That's what we learn. He really, really knows what's in your heart. Let's look at verse 23. Because of the miraculous sign Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. You know, there's a part of me when I read that, I get excited. I'm like, oh, Jesus knows my heart. But then there's a part of me where I get sad because my heart isn't good all the time. Like God really knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart. And I hope that you and I devote our lifetime into focusing and developing a heart that really pulsates and beats for Jesus. God knows that your heart is capable of loving people more than you even give yourself credit for. I've learned this over the years. Like, I thought, there's no way I'm going to love this person. But God knows your heart. He knows your heart's capacity to love. He really does. Like, if you told me growing up as a little kid and even in, like, middle school that one day I was going to be able to forgive my father who was very abusive towards my family and I and even sexually to one of my sisters, if you told me that one day I was going to get to a place where I was going to forgive him and be in a healthy relationship with him even before he dies, I would have told you, you're crazy. Never. Because I vowed to the day I died that I would never forgive that man when I was a kid. God knew my heart's capacity to love. 
And I was able to forgive him. I was able to be with him. And to the day he died, about seven, six years ago, six, seven years ago, I was able to be in a good, loving relationship with my father. God knows our heart's capacity to love, but he also knows our heart's capacity for deception and duplicity. He does. He knows your heart. And we have to be careful with that. Because if you don't guard that in your life, you're gonna, it's going to end up eating you up. It's not going to be a healthy place for you and I to be. Because not only does God know our heart's capacity for love, he also knows your heart's capacity for your deception, for things that oftentimes that embitter us towards others, right? Um, so let me just ask you. <laughs> I think this really boils down to this one question. Why do you believe in Jesus today? Why? I think your heart will be revealed by just answering that question. Do you just believe in Jesus because you're like a groupie? You're a Jesus groupie, not a Jesus disciple? When I say groupie, I mean that you're just kind of with him because you're hoping that as you're with him, that you see Jesus as like the celestial vending machine, that you put your shiny coins in the machine, and as long as you do that, he's going to keep blessing you with stuff in your life. If that's where your faith is, and that's where the foundation of your faith is, in hopes that Jesus will just bless you today, you're not going to last long. Because when some hardships come your way, it's going to really begin to embitter you. And you're going to start to struggle with deception and duplicity and other things in your life. And I hope that that never happens to us, but it may, and it has. It's happened to me at times as well. And it's really a sad reality when things like that happen. And so where are you today with all of this? Why are you following Jesus today? Why are you choosing to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Because if you're just sort of thinking about this eternal life insurance plan that God offers to you, and that's why you're following him, I'm like, that's true. You'll go to heaven when you die. But is that the only reason why you want to follow him? Because you just want to go to heaven when you die? Do you realize that you can experience heaven here on earth if you choose to be a disciple? Do you realize that there's some things that God may want you to live and see with your life if you're choosing to make some sacrifices for Jesus? That rather than you expecting God to always sacrifice for you, that you would be willing to sacrifice for him? See, God knows what's in your heart. He knows why you do the things you do. He knows why you decide to pursue him and things like that. He knows our hearts. And I hope that gives you comfort. But at the same time, I hope it gives you a little bit of discomfort to say, I got to work on this thing. I got to work in my heart because if I don't work on this thing, it's going to make me a real hard, bitter person. So how do we do that? How do we work in our hearts so that we can truly have a heart that beats for God? How do we do it? How do we do it? Here's a couple suggestions that I have for you, all right? That's really helped me over the years. Well, there's two out of the four are in this passage, okay? The first one is this. Love God's people, man. Learn to love God's people. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was just loving the people of God. Why was he so angry? Why did he start whipping religious leaders? I mean, this was a pretty flagrant thing Jesus was doing. It was because they were oppressing the poor people. They were oppressing people who didn't really have the money to buy an animal. They brought their own. Jesus couldn't stand that that these rich religious leaders were making more money off the, off the backs of these poor people. And so he was loving on them. That's why he went all crazy on these guys. So learn to love God's people. And I know that's a hard proposition at times, but we got to be committed to doing that. Now, I know you need to be loved too. I get that. But would you be committed to loving God's people in this church? That you would be committed to saying, you know what? If we're going to be family, if we're going to see each other for all eternity, we better start taking some steps of loving each other. I mean, really think about that for just a moment. 
Because heaven is not going to be a place where you live in isolation. You could live in isolation today because that's your choice. That's not God's choice. That's your choice. But when you get to heaven, you don't have a choice to live in isolation. You're going to live in community whether you like it or not. You're going to be around people, whether you, people you don't even like whether you like it or not. So shouldn't we just try to start loving each other right now here on, on earth in this church? You could start by trying to extend yourself to loving people in this church. That's exactly what Jesus did. We have to start doing the same. The other thing we should do is you start to share your soul with someone. Share your heart with someone. I talk about this all the time, soulmates. We just had a workshop about it last week, all right? It was great. We had about 40 people come out, and I was able to sort of help them to understand what a soulmate relationship is, and then I was able to put people in groups this week, and that was pretty cool. Can't wait to see what happens. We'll see what happens. But it's important, if you want to protect your heart and have a heart that really beats for Jesus, you got to be able to share your heart, especially the dark areas of your heart. Because if you don't share that, the light of Christ will not come in and be able to impact it. Look at what it says in James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. A good friend in this church sent me a, a, a TikTok video yesterday exactly on this passage. And it's so true. Why? Well, Jesus will forgive you of your sins. He will always do that, whether you choose to share it with somebody or not. But if you want healing from your sins, a lot of times we sin because there's a wound that's going on. Our addictions to sin is a result many times because of an unhealed wound. If you want that to be healed, you got to invite somebody to be a part of that because when you invite somebody to be a part of it, Jesus says, I'll be there when two or more are gathered. And what's happening in the cosmic reality of this is that the light of Jesus Christ is shining into those dark areas of your life and my life. And when that happens, healing takes place. You don't just need forgiveness of your sins. You need healing. Start sharing your soul, your heart with someone, especially those dark areas. If you continue to live in isolation with those things, you're never going to be healed. And many times that darkness is going to overtake you in hard ways. And God be with you if that happens. It doesn't have to happen. It's the choice that you've made. God is, would never choose that life for you. Do that. You know, I was reading this morning. Um, Harvard, 85-year study. Harvard University did a study for 85 years, and it took them 85 years to answer this one question. You know what the question was? How does one really attain happiness? That was their question. How does one truly attain happiness? And they went through all the different things. Is it success? Is it power? All that stuff, and it's none of that. You know what it is? It's living in healthy social relationships, according to what they say, social relationships. And they give like five or six different types of relationships you need to have. And for the, four of the six, your soulmates can fulfill for you if you just open yourself up. If you want to truly be happy and experience joy, it's really about you finding some people where you can share your hearts with completely. Because if you choose to just live in isolation with your pain, that's tough. Jesus didn't even do that. Why would you choose to do it if Jesus couldn't even do it? You're not better than Jesus, and I'm not better than Jesus. Share your heart with someone. The other thing is become a student of the Bible. We see that in this passage. Look at what it says in verse 17. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. And then verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. The disciple knew God's heart because they knew God's word. 
And if you want to know the heart of God, you got to know the word of God. There's no other way around it. And so will you devote yourself to being a student of God's word? Sign up for the New Testament challenge if you haven't. You can do that. We have almost 200 people signed up from our church. Every day we'll read the passage together. Right? You'll hear from a pastor on a Sunday. You have a question about the Bible, send an email to David Hosang and he'll help you to answer some of the things that you're reading. I mean, this is a really good opportunity for you to learn in an amazing way. Why? Just so that you can gain some knowledge? No. So that you can have the heart of God and you can know the heart of God. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Be a part of our third Thursday at 1130 a.m., our audio Bible club. We get together and we listen to the word for about an hour. If you can do that and you can flex your schedule, come and be a part of it. You eat lunch with us and we'll have a great time listening to the word of God. Be a part and be committed to being a student of the Bible. And then the last thing that really will help you to guard your heart and let your heart be in line with Jesus Christ, you got to learn to grieve your losses. You gotta learn to grieve. We are so, so remedial when it comes to learning how to grieve our losses. Because the majority of us, we treat our losses like an abnormality. We don't accept it as a normal part of life. We see it as an abnormality. And so we think that it shouldn't be there in our lives, but losses is just a part of life because we live in a very broken world. Some of you have gone through losses and you still haven't really processed it right now. And I was reading this this morning um, in my time with God on Psalms 34, 18. I feel like he gave it just for you this morning. Look what it says here. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Are your spirits crushed today? Are there some things that you've lost in your life where it just crushes your spirit? The Lord is close to you if you allow him to. You've got to learn to grieve your losses, because if we don't do that, then what begins to set in is bitterness. And bitterness is the most harmful emotion that would poison your soul. Because look at what Ephesians 4.26 says. Ephesians 4.26. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Meaning you give authority. You give authority of your life to the devil when you let bitterness and anger set in. And a lot of times when you don't grieve losses, hurts and pains that you've gone through from other people, you become very embittered. And if you want to know how, how bad somebody's bitterness is or how bad your bitterness is, just ask yourself, how willing are you to forgive people? Show me a person who's bitter and I'll show you a person who's not willing to forgive anyone. I know forgiveness is a journey, but you all got to get on that journey. Because if you don't do that, your hearts will be deceptive. You'll struggle with duplicity. And grieving your losses and the pains will help you to get to a place where you can forgive people. Right? So how do we give? How do we grieve? Because I know for a lot of us, we don't know how to grieve, man. You just don't know how to grieve. I know we spent uh, like an eight-week workshop on this last year, and I know it was so helpful for a lot of our people that came out to be a part of it. But how do you grieve well? How do you grieve your losses? Can I just share two key things that's helped me over the years? And I'm not good at this either. I've got to be honest with you. I don't like to grieve as well. When I go through hurts and losses, I just want to pretend I'm all strong and everything is cool. But i got to take a step back, all right? So how do you grieve? The first thing is this. Pay attention to the pain. Stop ignoring it. Stop pretending it doesn't exist. Pay attention to the pain that you're feeling in your heart because of the loss or whatever that, might, that you might be going through in your life. Pay attention. 
The Bible invites us to integrate seasons of grief and sadness as a central component to our spiritual development, to our spiritual formation. It really does. When you think about it, do you know this in, in, in the book of Job? 35 chapters in the book of Job is where Job is struggling with anguish, anger, suicide at times, and depression. 35 chapters in Job focuses on those things. There's an entire Old Testament book called Lamentations. Two-thirds of the Psalms is on lament. And look at what Hebrews 5, 7, it says, Jesus himself prayed prayers with loud cries and tears. Jesus, you got to pay attention to the pain. you got to pay attention. And so you're saying, but whoa, 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 I don't even know how to do that. Here it is. You're ready for this? Here are the four questions you ask yourself to pay attention to your pain. And at parents, do this with your kids. A great exercise. But these four things, I don't want you to just reflect on this by yourself. It's good to sit down with somebody and share it together. Right? Here's the four questions you ask and how you pay attention to the pain. What are you angry about today? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? And what are you glad about? Share those four things. What are you angry about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? Now listen, that might seem easy, but it's actually really hard. It's really hard to answer those four questions. Parents, you'd be amazed if you can share this at the dinner table with your kids, but you'd be the first ones to share. Set the tone and then see what they share. Your family dynamics would change tremendously. But that's how you pay attention to the pain. Just ask yourself, what am I so angry about right now? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? What am I glad about? All right? That's key. And then after you pay attention to the pain, here's the other thing you have to do to learn to grieve well. You got to wait in the confusing in-between. You got to learn to wait in the confusing in-between. I know when you're going through loss. I know when you're hurting, you just want it to end right away. Right? But God doesn't work that way. I wish he did. I wish he was so quick, like fast food, like you order something and it's done. You get it and you get your healing, right? But it doesn't work that way. It takes time. It takes time. You got to wait in the confusing in between. You can't lose faith. Just wait. God wants you to wait. He'll do something beautiful if you're willing to wait, right? Noah waited a long time for God to bring the waters, the rain, didn't he? And then what happened when the flood happened? He waited a long time before the flood receded with water. Noah waited a long time for that. Abraham and Sarah waited about 25 years before God followed through with the promise of giving them a child. 25 years. Joseph waited over 20 years to figure out how all the suffering he had to endure from his brothers, all the things he had to endure, he waited 20 years to figure out what God's purpose was for his life. 20 years, man. Are you willing to wait 20 years? I hope so. Moses waited that long. Moses waited 40 years. He lived in the desert, man, not knowing what he was supposed to do with his life. And then God calls him and says, hey, I want you to go now and lead my people out of Egypt. He waited 40 years for that. And then you know what else happened? He waited 40 more years to get to the promised land. And he didn't even get to the promised land, guys. He died before he got there. I mean, think of 80 years, man, 80 years. You got to wait in the confusing in between, man. You got to learn to do that. Remember Hannah? She was praying that God would give her a son. She said, I'll dedicate him to you. And Finally, she did. She waited years before Samuel was born. And you even see that with Elizabeth. 
when John the Baptist was born. She never thought she was going to have a kid. She waited and waited. You and I have to learn to wait in the confusing in between. That when you're going through grief and loss, God's not going to rush the process because it takes time. It's delicate. It requires time. And God is the master. He's the master that will be able to create whatever he needs to do, form you and build you through it in a way that's going to make you look beautiful one day, man. But you just got to wait in the confusing in between. And I know we live in a society where everything is about hurry, 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 instant gratification. You got to just learn to wait because God has an amazing thing planned for you. Amen. If you're waiting, willing to wait in the confusing in between. It's not easy to grieve, but you got to pay attention to the pain. You got to be willing to wait in the confusing in between. When Jesus clears the temple, he teaches us that God truly cares about the church and he knows what's in our hearts. He knows. And I pray that your heart would truly pulsate and be completely in line with God. The next time you go through struggles, loss, and pains, don't see them as abnormal things that we should get rid of. No. See them as invitations from God to seek them so that our heart stays in line with Jesus Christ. So like five years ago, five, six years ago, um, I came up here and we started a capital campaign. We want Metro to have a permanent home. And this happened many, many years ago when I really felt really convicted by God that I don't think our church will ever get to a point. I don't want to say never, but I don't think God is calling us to spend millions of dollars to build a church building. And when we came into this community, I, I met up with um, the chief of police, the captains here. I met up with some pastors. And I sat down with them. And I said, what is the greatest need of this city? And every single one of them, when I asked that, they said one thing, community center. Community center is the greatest need. And I didn't know this because I didn't know the history of the city. But for 40 years, Englewood and the people in this community have asked the city for a community center. I didn't know that. And so I just said, well, that's it. That's it. Metro's not going to spend money to build a church building. We're going to build a community center for the city. That's the hope. And then years later, what began to happen was that we, I started to realize that there's a place, Liberty School, that's less than a quarter mile, about a half a mile from here. In the city center, right, there's a picture we'll show you. And it's an abandoned building. It's the oldest building in Englewood. And the city of Englewood owns it. And I felt, we felt like, I felt like God was saying, well, this is the Nehemiah story. That right now that building lies in ruins. And God's going to call us to go to the city officials like Nehemiah went to the king and said, hey, can you send me? Because I will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we thought that we could just ask the city, hey, send us. We will rebuild the walls of this place and we'll make it a community center. And we'll use it on Sundays like this as a church. That was our vision. We did a capital campaign. We raised about $1.6 million. And I want to thank all of you for giving to that because you gave to a vision. We didn't even have site control yet, and you still gave to it. God bless you guys for that. Really, yeah, yeah that deserves a round of applause. Whoever's doing that deserves a round of applause. It's been a process. We submitted our request for proposal last, last year, thinking that we'll get a yes or a no. And we didn't get a yes or a no because the process was that the city of Englewood has to, by law, get back to us in six weeks after the RFP was submitted. They didn't get back to us for six months. So when the new city manager came on, he said, well, you can't accept the RFP. We've got to just throw it away. We've got to have them refill out another one. I'm thinking, another one? Oh, man. It's been five years. Sunita and I have spent 
hundred of hours, meeting up with every city official, every gatekeeper of this community, talking to them about what we're trying to do. People have said some bad things about me in this community. I didn't know about it, but folks from this church and others like that know me and, and they, they care about me, they'll call me or meet with me and they'll say, dude, they're saying some bad things. We don't know who, but they're saying some really bad things about you right now. And this one guy was so sweet, he goes, we need to start a social media campaign about you. Because people don't know what you're trying to do here. They think that you're just trying to trick the city into giving you this building so that you could make it into a church. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I just said, I said, don't worry about it. It's okay. Because at the end of the day, God knows my heart. He knows my heart. I'm not trying to get a building for us. I want us to spend millions of dollars to build a building so that we could build a different kind of a temple that I think will be a model for all churches. Because I don't think churches, honestly, some churches they should maybe. But honestly, why do churches need to spend 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars to build a building that they use at full capacity for one day, a week? Why can't we do something where we could build a place where the city could come, be a part of it, and maybe because we're there too, that they would be able to encounter the presence of God while they're there. This city is so divided. I hope that this space will be a third space where people can come and there can be some level of reconciliation and unity in this community. And I cannot believe that God is inviting us to be a part of that, man. That's crazy when you think about that. That is something that very few Christians get to experience before they die. And I'm so thankful that God's called us to be a part of that. And I hope you are too because that's an invitation. Is it going to be hard? Oh, yeah. Are people going to say some bad things about you too, not just me? I hope so. So we can mourn and suffer together. Right? But why do we do it? We do it because people need to love God. People need to know that there's a God who loves them. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how much long I'm going to be at this church. If I had it my way, I would like to retire here. Honestly, I would. But God may call me someplace else. My promise to you is this. While I'm here, I will give it 150% to do what God is calling us to do here at Metro Community Church. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how much longer you're going to be here either. I don't. Some of you might leave in a month. Some of you might leave in a year. Some of you might leave in two, three, four, five years. Whenever you decide to leave this church, while you're here, while you are here with us, why not give it 150%? Give all of yourself to this church. Amen. Care for it where God cares for it. Serve it. Love it. And grow a heart that beats with God in such a way where you'll be able to feel the passions that God has for the people in this community so that we can use this church, Metro Community Church, as a place that can be an outpost for the kingdom of God. Why not do that? Will you care for the church the way God does? Will your heart be in line with Jesus Christ today? By loving God's people, begin to share your heart with some people, become a student of the Bible, and certainly learn to grieve your losses in life. It's my hope and prayer for you. Let's pray. Lord, I know every generation, the churches have always had their struggles. 
Even the early church had their struggles. We read about that in the Bible, of course. And God, I know that probably the greatest struggle that our generation faces today is the apathy that people have towards church. And I know that there might be some people here today that feel that as well. God, would you show them your heart today? Would you break their heart with the things that break your heart? You wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross and resurrect from the dead if you wanted the church to one day go away. The church will never go away because Jesus is the head of the church and we're his body. So help us to care for it the way you would want us to, to be a good steward of the responsibility that you've placed upon each and every one of us to love this church. And God, you know what's in our hearts, and sometimes our hearts can be so deceptive and deceitful. Oh God, it can be so dark because of the darkness in the world in which we live in many times. And some of us, we never asked for that darkness. We were born into it. And it still hurts us to this day. And we struggle with deception, duplicity. But at the same time, we struggle because we do have a heart that longs for you. So God, would you help us? Help us to guard our hearts, but help so that our hearts can align with you. God, that you would help us to just love the people that you've called us to love here at Metro Community Church. God, you help us to be open to sharing. Invite somebody into our dark little world so that the light of Jesus would just shine into those dark areas and so that there can be healing, not just forgiveness, but healing. And God, I pray you help us to be a student of the Bible because your heart is in your word. And if we know your word, we'll know your heart. And I just pray that you'll help my brothers and sisters to grieve their losses. And they would not see it as an abnormality, but they would see it as an invitation for them to grow deeper in their understanding of you and of themselves. So help them to pay attention to the pain and help them to be patient and wait in the confusing in between. Be with them, God. Encourage them. And God, I pray that we as a church would continue to pray that you would give us Liberty School. Thank you for the invitation, for us to have faith in believing in that. Thank you that I get to be a part of that before I die. That I get to be a part of something so big, so much bigger than anything that I could ever want to be a part of, that if I try to do it on my own, and I pray, God, that even the city officials would see our sincerity in our hearts and they would be open to giving us a long-term lease for that building so that we can build this city its first community center in its history. So we just lift that up in prayer to you. And we thank you, God, for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.